The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled, Do You Know How to Use COVID-19 Monoclonal Antibodies as Pre-Exposure Prophylaxis for Your Post-Transplant Patients? Test your knowledge. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash EWZ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this symposium. This will be, do you know how to use COVID-19 monoclonal antibodies as pre-exposure prophylaxis for your post-transplant patients? Test your knowledge. So uh, I am the moderator. I'm Camille Cotton, and I come from, um, right down the road from Massachusetts General Hospital. I'm here with the panelists, Myron uh, Cohen and Shmuel Shoham. And without further ado, I'd like to um, introduce our first speaker, Dr. Myron uh, Cohen, who is at uh, UNC Chapel Hill and has done a lot of work in the field. And so it's a real pleasure to have him today with us. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, good morning. I guess good afternoon. From my point of view, it's so rare to be talking to people live. Um, and you're so used to Zoom. And looking at people is kind of scary. Also, we're wearing a full clothing outfit. Almost, <laughs> I've not given a lecture of pants on for several years now. So, so it's kind of a rare, a rare privilege. Um, I'm going to talk, I talk very fast, and I'm just going to make a couple of points um, about the kind of work we've been doing. And I guess I'll start just by reviewing what you already know, that for COVID, which has been with us for a couple of years now, we needed to understand the rules. We don't know every rule of COVID, but we know that the nose is the route to bad stuff happening, and that once virus infection is established in the nose, if, if it isn't controlled, the virus can be aspirated to the lungs, can be very inflammatory. People can become very ill, hospitalized, and die. So our goal really has been to prevent infection using three kind of tools, masks, structural intervention, vaccines, which I'm sure everyone in this room has taken and given out, and monoclonal antibodies. Those are our three big strategies. And then lately, we're very focused on uh, treating people early uh, who we believe are, believe are at greater risk for progression of disease. Now, the progression of disease idea is really important. You're, you're a very unique audience because I would guess to say that everyone in this audience is, is managing people who are at risk of progression of disease. But when we look at the more general population, what's amazing about COVID is how it's selecting age as a metric. And so the, the, during the Delta wave, our, our, our early, our, our alpha wave and our delta wave, we saw that the people who did poorly and died, that age was a metric that was unbelievably important. And as we go forward, it's going to be tough not to begin thinking about age as something that represents a factor that makes you a compromised host. Being pretty old myself, I'm quite sensitive to that. Um, and then you look at the other cofactors that have been identified, which really don't hold nearly as much weight as age, nearly as much weight as age. Those cofactors, I think, go along with age. So I've already told you that our, 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 our kind of prevention strategies can be structural, like the masks some of you are wearing now, which we know work, 
or, or biological. And in the biological space, we've got active immunity. We're not going to talk about that today much, although we might get in, into a discussion about active immunity. Do vaccines work in everybody, or and who can they be predicted to work in? Passive immunity, which we think is extremely important for people who cannot respond to vaccines. And um, I'm sure we'll use the term today, vaccines and monoclonal antibodies as a, as a way to deal with people who are at grave risk for progression disease. And then one thing that hasn't worked out for us, so far at least, is treatment as prevention. Now, what do I mean by that? In the HIV field, there's no doubt that our main strategy is to find people infected, treat them, render them no longer viremic, and then they're no longer contagious. But for when we tried to do this in COVID by treating a person in a household and showing by treating them early in a household, one way or the other, they don't infect other people in the household, we've been unable to prove the treatment can serve as prevention. And this obviously has a lot to do with the rapid transmission, the, the R-naught of, of these agents, of the COVID agents. Now, I'm going to slow down a lot on the slide because this is how, this is the room where it happens on this one slide. And I, I really want to make this entirely clear. The way that we're making monoclonal antibodies is derived from work done on HIV for 20 years. And a lot of it is, is from uh, uh, Michelle Nuzman's bike at Rockefeller and Bill Sheaf and a few other, and John Muscola at NIH and Dennis Burden in San Diego. What happens is for any person with an infection, and especially a viral infection, you can bleed them and have convalescent blood. And in that convalescent blood, you can say, I'm going to look for a person whose convalescent blood has super-duper antibodies neutralizing whatever I'm interested in. Today, we're interested in COVID, but you could do the same thing with HIV or norovirus or any other infectious viral agent. You find super-duper antibodies in the blood. So a smidgen of the blood plasma or blood serum stops the growth of the virus. But then we have the technology to isolate the B cell that's making that antibody. And once we isolate that B cell, we can make a monoclonal antibody. And so as soon as COVID came along, within weeks, 20, 30 companies were doing what I've just described, trying to find the best antibodies possible. Once you think you have a great antibody, you have to prove that the B cells you've harvested can replicate, can grow in a test tube. Because if you can't make them grow, you're going to have a problem. If they grow well and are producing antibodies well, and you, you take the antibodies to an animal, and you start asking, if I give those antibodies to a ferret or a serum hamster or a monkey, can I either protect the animal from infection or can I treat the animal if they get infected? So there's an animal component. Once we're done with the animal component, we take the antibody into human phase one trials and we look to see they're safe. Now, if they're safe. Here's a really important point. You're all used to watching television, and many of you have given antibodies that are directed against the host. Umira or Ketruva, or one of these antibodies. They have a lot of side effects because they're directed at the host. Monoclonal antibodies directed at viral pathogens have very few side effects. We did a study published about a couple of years ago in the New England Journal where we gave 44,000 people monoclonal antibodies directed against HIV with no serious side effects. So the, the monoclonal antibodies in the infectious disease field were focusing on COVID, but they're a big growth industry. And because we can make them really quickly, and we can make new ones when we need to make new ones. So now, if you look at the development of these antibodies, the NIH collaborated with industry over the last two years to develop a lot of, the, most of these antibodies with federal tax dollars. And the things we were thinking about are on this slide. If somebody has never been vaccinated or didn't respond to a vaccine, we can offer them immediate protection with a huge dose of an antibody. 
Donald Trump, who was doing very, very badly in this, I don't think, what I'm telling you is not a secret, but it's going to be true. He was doing very badly and received eight grams of Regencove. The therapeutic dose is 1,200 milligrams. So that eight grams of antibody, I'm, I personally think saved his life because a huge amount of antibody was going to organs that were, you know, suffering from uh, SARS-CoV-2 inf infection. So you can offer immediate protection. You can give them to people who are unlikely to respond to a vaccine or cannot take a vaccine, which is a lot of the people, a lot of the patients who are managing uh, in this audience. <clears throat> you can stop the replication of the virus in the nodes, and we'll say a little bit more about that in a few minutes. And we do like to inform how much antibody we're... We, we like to try and understand how much antibody we're putting in different tissue compartments to better understand how a vaccine may or may not work. Vaccines were mostly developed to stop the progression of disease. In fact, we were barely measuring whether they stopped transmission disease. Monoclonals are developed to, as pre and post-exposure prophylaxis to stop both acquisition of infection as well as progression of infection. So right away, when we started working on this, who are the target populations? Nursing home patients. Why? Age, age, and age. And the death rate, 30 or 40 percent of all the people who died in the United States during the Alpha and Delta waves were living in long-term care facilities, assisted living facilities. Um, index cases of households. Could we protect other people living in households where, depending on the virus, you go from 10 to 50 percent household members get infected? Compromised hosts, which we're talking about today, and Dr. Shom will say a lot more about that. And then, for reasons I won't even explain, we focused a lot on meat packers. And so my colleagues and I talked to every meatpacking company known to man. And I, I, if there's time, we can go into why, why meatpackers prove so vulnerable. So we did a study with Eli Lilly with a drug called bamlanivimab. And, this, and the study was called Blaze 2. But this was the first attempt to show that you could take a high-risk person in an epidemic, give them a monoclonal antibody, at that time allowed to be compared to a placebo, and stop the acquisition of SARS-CoV-2. So Lilly built these vans, each one cost about a million dollars, and each van had seven people in it. And they crisscrossed the country with everything they needed to go, like a SWAT team, to a nursing home. And we made deals with nursing homes that when they had a COVID outbreak, they would call 1-800-HELP, and then this van would show up, and anyone who wanted to participate would randomize to placebo or bamlanivimab. And this is, again, against the uh, original strain of virus. And we saw 82% prevention of acquisition of SARS-CoV-2 in the residents of nursing homes by giving bamlanivimab. This was proof of concept. Very quickly, the virus escaped this one antibody. So we're not talking about it anymore. But we proved that the idea worked. Now, at the same time, we, we were working on another drug with Regeneron that's ultimately be called Regencove. And that was used in a slightly different way. It was used both for a household prevention study, where we were able to show that if we prophylaxed people in a household before they were infected, we could prevent infection 80% of the time, the same basic idea. But this is now a treatment study, and I only want to show you one thing on the treatment study. So now Regenco is being used early in to show you that the nose is the window to everything. So once you get SARS-CoV-2 in your nose, it replicates very quickly that the cycle threshold becomes very low. It takes just a few cycles to see a positive response. So under 20, under, under 20, you got a lot of virus. But the host is going to make antibodies. The, the normal host, 98% of them, are going to quickly make antibodies, and the viral concentration of the nose is going to fall. Some hosts will be slow in making their antibodies. The hosts who are slow in making antibodies are going to be at greater risk to aspirate the virus from the nose into the lung and suffer the consequences 
of inflammation and pneumonia that can occur from continually replicating virus. So in this study by David Weinrich in the New England Journal, what he's showing is that now the combination of Regen-CoV-2 antibodies is simply speeding up the velocity by which the viral concentration is reduced in the nose. If you just look at this slide compared to this slide, he's showing that Regen-CoV does not have much of a benefit in people who've already made antibodies. So the advantage is in people who are slow in making antibodies or don't make antibodies. But those are the patients that you guys are managing, which is why we're here today. At least some of them are those patients. Now, to carry on the story, what happened was we went from the Wuhan virus to alpha, beta, delta, omicron, omicron, B1, B2, B3, B4, B5. So these antibodies, for the most part, had trouble holding up. So everything dropped out of the picture with monoclonal antibodies pretty much simultaneously. Regen-CoV dropped out of the picture. Sotravibumab dropped out of the picture. Bemlinivimab and its, and its partner. All these companies, they dropped out. Lilly did was said to the FDA, and this is an important idea, they said, look, we cannot do another clinical trial. But we have another antibody called uh, Bebtilivimab, which is active against Omicron. And so if you let us give that to people and show it's safe, and you let us measure its ability to accelerate reduction of virus in the nose, and if you let us use it under EUA, if we prove this to be true, we will go forward with that pelivimab. So what happened was they succeeded, and they showed, they, they did a more complicated study than I'm describing. They did a placebo-controlled trial, and they showed about almost a log difference in velocity of reduction of viral replication of bebtilivimab versus um, uh, placebo or other combinations. That led then to the EUA approval of this one monoclonal for treatment to prevent progression of disease in uh, people who are at grave risk of progression of disease. Who are those people? The people who are compromised hosts by, by our definition and older patients living in, in long-term care facilities. So the monoclonal antibodies are really important for COVID and for other infection diseases. This is gonna be era where we're gonna have a lot of monoclonal antibodies. It's not gonna go away. However, there's an advantage in pills, in small molecules. And so the directly acting small molecules, low touch, you can drive through, you know, this is President Biden's plan, you know, you get a, do a rapid test, you drive through a pharmacy, they throw the pills in your car and you drive away. That's actually a pretty good idea. As you know, the pharmacists want to be able to do this almost independent of the physician. No effect uh, uh, on, vac on if you've been vaccinated or not vaccinated, there's not, no interaction. And, but they do depend on patient adherence. If you're, these, uh, Paxlovid tastes very bad. Patients don't take it. They're not going to benefit from it. Now, the, the Paxlovid drug has been challenging for reasons that Dr. Cotton already indicated. Molnupiravir is a really interesting drug that had an efficacy in, in Merck's clinical trial of only 30%. We actually don't completely believe it's as bad as that trial shows. And there's almost as much Molnupiravir being prescribed as, as Paxlovid, which is a shock, because it's only 30% effective. But I think the reason for that has to do with that, that people afraid of the drug interaction. Conversely, Molnupiravir is a big mutagen, so a lot of experts are worried about its mutagenic uh, potential. But I think that either way, and the kind of people that are being discussed today, if for prophylaxis, Dr. Shom is going to get into great detail, if someone gets infected, providing an agent that will stop progression disease is important. The last thing I just want to say before we end is that a very large number of people with COVID across all populations 
get long COVID of one sort or another. And I can't tell you, our clinic is managing a thousand people. There's a study called recovery study that I don't know how many they're enrolling, you know, $500 million study out of New York City to enroll, to try and better understand long COVID. We know that COVID is shed in the stool for very long periods of time. We don't understand that. Is there still some active replication in some compartment? Is there endless antigenic stimulation inflammation? But one of the issues here is does, prof- does vaccination, does prevention with a monoclonal, does early treatment affect long COVID? I, I know no one who can accurately answer that question, but that's a really, really cr- cr- uh, critical question. So uh, this paper is the one that really is a critical paper for our discussion today, <clears throat> a study that demonstrated 80% prevention of acquisition of infection for 183 days when this combination of monoclonal antibodies were given. Really important observation. Dr. Shomans will talk in great detail about this. It led to an EUA that he will discuss again in great detail, the ins and outs of the EUA. Um, and my only two last, my only last comments are as follows. That resistance is always something we worry about. These monoclonals are growing in people. These, the virus is trying to escape the monoclonals. So, um, this paper by, by Jim Crow, who discovered the antibodies that AstraZeneca is using, he demonstrates that, that the, Combination retains its activity against uh, Omicron beta 1 and beta 2, probably also against 4 and 5. Again, Dr. Shum will talk about that more. So retaining the activity is a piece of luck, but it's really important for us to have an agent that still works. Um, and then the last thing I'll say before I draw a conclusion is, um, well, I'll draw a conclusion just to make it short. So behavior changes are required to limit the spread of SARS-CoV-2. While we're tired of masks, Masks really work, and so we're, they're just not going to go away because we want them to go away. And I appreciate that many of you <laughs> have that in your mind as you're wearing your mask. Vaccines will help limit progression of disease, um, but they don't work so well. At least the vaccines we have now do not necessarily prevent acquisition of infection, and they're not durable. That's been our biggest problem. Most of you have had three or four vaccine boosters to, to stay ahead of the virus. In the fall, we're going to do something different, um, but we won't go there today. But the point is, vaccines are really important. Monoclonals have been approved through EUA for PEP, PrEP, and for the early treatment of SARS-CoV-2. We're waiting to see whether they're going to be officially approved. Remember, the only officially approved drug in your armamentarium now is remdesivir, which has a, a licensing agreement. All these others are under EUA. Once there's licensing agreements, we have a lot more flexibility of what we do. Antiviral drugs like um, like uh, Paxlovid and others in development, they could be game changers, but they depend on people taking their pills, and they depend on few side effects, the fewest possible side effects. What do we have to do? We've got to improve our vaccination strategy. We've got to ensure availability of simple and rapid tests so people know when they're infected, reliable, simple, rapid tests so we can treat them and that they don't develop progression disease. We've got to educate patients and healthcare providers about all these drugs and about their use, about pre-exposure prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis, and early treatment. We've not done a good job at this. I mean, I get called, we've just not done a great job. We've got to do a better job. And then we've got to match the right people with the right time with the right medications to try and get ahead of this pandemic. And that's really our goal. So I'm going to turn this over to my colleague who is going to say everything. Thanks. So I'm going to start with a uh, case. This is an actual patient um, uh, of mine, uh, history of acute liver failure due to uh, rhabdomyolysis. As a result, he underwent a liver transplant several years ago. And uh, he uh, 
uh, was very excited about the vaccines coming, and he got involved in a vaccine trial that uh, uh, my colleagues are doing at Hopkins, and he's received multiple doses. By multiple, I mean seven doses of the vaccine. And uh, initially, he had good antibodies, but then after a period of time, his, his antibodies would fall, and then he'd get the vaccine again and bump and fall. And then uh, at some point, it actually stopped going up. And uh, he wants to know what can he do about pre-exposure prophylaxis. This is a, an article that just came out the other day, and my uh, sister-in-law sent it to me. Uh, uh, it it uh, came out of uh, the VA system, and uh, uh, it, lo it looked at long COVID outcomes after breakthrough infections. You may have heard about it in NPR. And uh, I, I think that the top line, which is not a long COVID, but uh, it's obviously a very important uh, outcome, it is extremely interesting to me. So if you are an immune-compromised person who, for whatever reason, said, I'm not getting vaccinated, and got COVID at the time when they were doing this study, which was uh, uh, up until, I think, the beginning of Omicron, 6.1% mortality. If you're an immune-compromised patient and said, yes, I'm going to get vaccinated, your mortality was lower, but it wasn't zero, it was five. And then on the other side is the non-immunocompromised patients, which is not the focus that we're having. Also, in terms of other complications, you can see that uh, getting vaccinated is a good thing, but it, it doesn't bring you all the way home um, in, in terms of prevention. And this is before the availability of post-exposure prophylaxis. And this is one of the reasons why us as clinicians and the patients were so uh, happy that there was going to be post-exposure prophylaxis options because the numbers that uh, you're seeing for the vaccinated patients with 5% mortality and some of the other numbers were uh, disturbing. Um, the increased risk of uh, outcomes after breakthrough infection in immunocompromised versus non-immunocompromised patients, many of you guys, uh, particularly the, the, the surgeons and the, um, and, 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 and the nephrologists, see a lot of patients that aren't immunocompromised. And you can see there's a substantial difference in the transplant patients that you're caring for than in the dialysis patients, which are immunocompromised, but they're not immunocompromised in the way that we often think about. Uh, similarly, a patient with, say, a cholangiocarcinoma or a problem with their pancreas that you may be operating on is very different than the liver transplant patient that you have. And, and, and there you see the uh, uh, increased hazard ratio for all kinds of outcomes in the immunocompromised versus non-immunocompromised. Initially, it was interesting in that, that when COVID first happened, uh, I, I was expecting our immunocompromised patients to get crushed, and they weren't, and I was happy about that. But I think the reason that they weren't getting crushed is that they were so used to being careful, wearing a mask and all that, and then with enough time, then they got the, they got the infection. And just like every other transplant situation, they're like everybody else except more so. So their, their outcomes are, uh, are worse. So one of the, uh, the main option that we have uh, using the, the, the term belt and suspenders, so you got your belt, vaccination, and then you have your suspenders, a passive immunotherapy option as, uh, as a prevention. And so the main suspender that we have is uh, this drug, which uh, is uh, Evusheld. What is it? Uh, it's a monoclonal antibody. It's been modified so that it has a ultra-long half-life, uh, like, like weeks and weeks and weeks, so that it can last... Uh, uh, up to about six months, and that's one of the questions that comes up is, okay, you got it six months ago. Do we, uh, you know, bring you into the shop and give you another shot, or uh, what do we do? Don't know yet, but uh, that's uh, hopefully we'll get some clarity from the uh, 
uh, from the FDA uh, as to what happens with the people that their six-month clock has run out. So you give it for uh, um, kids that are over 12 and grown-ups, um, patients that have that do not actually have COVID right now because uh, it's not a treatment, that have moderate or severe immunocompromised conditions, so all the transplant patients, and or patients that are not appropriate for vaccination. So in your other life, when you're not dealing with transplant patients, if you have somebody that, for whatever reason, cannot get a vaccine, and by whatever reason, I don't mean that, um, that you know, they read in the paper that vaccines cause autism, like a bona fide reason uh, not to get vaccines. So if you got one of those, then they can also get that. It is not a substitute for vaccination. Uh, what do you do with it? Uh, you give the 300 milligrams of the one drug and the 300 milligrams of the other drug, and you give them as, uh, uh, as, as shots in the tushy. Um, and if you give the 150, 150, which is how it was initially, you bring them back in, you give them uh, ketchup to get up to the, uh, uh, the 300, 300. Uh, as in monoclonal antibody, it doesn't go through the SIP system, so no worries there. It, uh, it seems to be, uh, uh, the body seems to break it down through magical pathways that don't involve the kidney or the liver, so no issues there. Um, PK differences don't seem to make a difference. Uh, no pregnancy data. Uh, theoretically, the antibodies can go to the fetus, uh, uh, whether it would do any bad harm to the fetus, we don't know, but uh, that's kind of where the data is on the drug. So this brings us to the uh, question is, uh, is, what does the vaccine respond to in solid organ transplants? So the vaccine response in uh, um, uh, the general population is very good. We know that the vaccine response in dialysis patients is good but not great. So how about the solid organ transplant patients? This is a meta-analysis that included uh, or pooled analysis of uh, 29 studies, over 11,000 patients that looked at antibody responses to the mRNA vaccine. 10.4% had a response after one dose, 45% after two doses, and 63% after three doses. Uh, I'm sure if uh, we had more arrows for a fourth dose, it would be a little bit better. And uh, I believe that now some patients are getting fifth doses. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and, and I don't know if, um, if the numbers are better after a fifth dose or if it's just that that they start dropping down and then it get, gets them back up to where they were. But uh, that's where we are with fifth doses. So factors associated with poor antibody response, uh, harking back to the uh, earlier older age, that's going to be a, a big uh, driver. Uh, deceased donor status, uh, not exactly sure what it is about that. Maybe they, they're on a higher level of immunosuppression. Anti-metabolite use, if uh, 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 my, my colleague was here who... Uh, is uh, cell septis his enemy, uh, then uh, he'd be uh, very happy to see anti-metabolite use uh, as a bad guy. Uh, recent use of rituximab. Rituximab is, a, is really the enemy of getting antibodies produced. Uh, some of the patients that we've had with the longest ongoing infection that they just cannot clear their virus are people that got rituximab. And then people that got rituximab, you can give them a lot of vaccines. They're just not going to get a good response. <clears throat> So that's uh, your group. And then recent use of antithymocyte globulin, uh, and uh, that's a, another uh, group that uh, has a poor vaccine response. Uh, fourth dose population, they looked at 25 SOT recipients, so the numbers are much smaller than, or that, uh, than the previous study. Antireceptor binding domain seropositivity after the fourth dose went up to uh, 84%, from 56 to 84%. Anti-spike antibody increased from 68 to 88 percent, 
neutralization versus Omicron was poor at baseline and did not increase after the fourth dose. So uh, good antibody levels, but how it really plays out in terms of protecting the patient against Omicron, at least in vitro, question marks. And uh, this is a, a data that was put out by uh, Andrew Caraba, and uh, it's, uh, he's at this meeting, so you can try to corner him and ask him to explain more uh, if you see him. Rising superstar in uh, transplant uh, ID. Risk factors for severe illness. Okay, so first part was showing you how antibody responses aren't great and maybe you're not as protected as you would like the transplant patients to be. But how about, okay, so now they get the infection, what happens to them? And you can see all these different risk groups, including solid organ transplant and stem cell transplant. However, our patients don't just travel as a transplant patient. Uh, they're often uh, overweight with a BMI of 25. BMI of 25, that makes me cringe. I'm definitely over 25 myself. But I don't always think of myself as uh, as in that uh, high-risk group, but I guess I am. Um, um, and then you can see all the different uh, risks, diabetes uh, uh, and uh, uh, heart conditions. Uh, oftentimes, our patients have all that. All right, so let's talk about this trial. This is a uh, uh, large randomized trial. Uh, that was touched on a little bit earlier. The population was not vaccinated, not convalescent. That means that they never had the infection before. And almost all were non-immunocompromised. So essentially, these patients are different than the ones that you're using the drug in. We're going to be highly vaccinated group. Um, at most centers, that's now a requirement to get transplanted. Um, and uh, and, and uh, all are going to be immunocompromised uh, um, so extrapolation of the data. Uh, but what the data did show is that when you gave the drug to 3,400 people compared to placebo, you had decreased rates of infection. Um, eight out of the uh, over 3,000 participants, uh, they got Evusheld 0.2% versus 17 uh, of the uh, 1,700 patients that got placebo, which was 1% got uh, COVID, and the relative risk reduction was 76.7%. Uh, what that says is that in a population of non-vaccinated, non-immunocompromised patients, you can all but eliminate the chance of getting COVID by giving uh, this drug if it's still effective. Uh, right now, it is effective against the viruses that are circulating. What the situation will look like in January, don't know. I'll show you some slides to uh, get you thinking about that. Uh, and uh, and whether and does this translate to an immunocompromised population? Question not answered by uh, uh, studies uh, yet. But uh, uh, the uh, decision was to take this data and apply it to the highest risk population because the um, other data that I showed you about how uh, risky it is for a transplant patient to get COVID. Um, and here's a uh, illustration of the. Uh, study showing how uh, the, uh, the difference in blue versus uh, uh, red uh, in terms of, um, of outcomes and that there really is a split. Now, one thing that's interesting is that early on, there's already some cases of uh, breakthrough that happened in the Evusheld arm and then not too many more breakthroughs after the beginning. And what that shows me is that, uh, that, that early on, first couple of weeks after you get the shot, you're still a pretty high risk for getting an infection. And, and uh, uh, it, it, maybe the drug hasn't 
left the tushy yet to get into the whole bloodstream. Uh, but uh, uh, maybe people just got it and saying, oh, this is great. I can go to a wedding or bar mitzvah now because I'm protected. But whatever it is, early on, uh, the first few weeks, uh, um, uh, breakthroughs uh, can occur. And they can occur throughout, even afterwards. And we've all uh, seen breakthroughs of uh, every shell. People that got vaccinated, got every shell, they still get uh, an infection. But uh, again, the belt and suspenders to try to reduce the chance of a bad outcome, but not a uh, free ride for, for now to you know, go out and, uh, um, and, and, and live a risk-free life. All right, this is a study that uh, also by uh, uh, the uh, super group uh, that are my colleagues, uh, uh, what they did here is uh, they took um, antibody levels and measured, uh, uh, measured antibody levels and plasma neutralizing activity after getting every shelled and vaccinated solid organ transplant recipients. 61 patients that were vaccinated. At baseline, they drew their blood. They gave them every shelled. And then they drew the blood again after uh, uh, two weeks. Uh, and then they looked at uh, antibody levels at, uh, um, uh, at baseline, went uh, um, uh, up from uh, uh, 424 to 3394. Uh, not a surprise. You gave them antibodies. Uh, but what about that neutralization? They took their blood. They applied it to um, a, uh, an assay that measures how well it neutralizes the virus. For BA1, they went from 8 to 16%. Not so great. For BA2, which is overwhelmingly the circulating o- Omicron variant that we have now, they went from 7 to 72%. So uh, before they got Evershell, they weren't really all that protected. After they got Evershell, they were pretty well protected. Not 100%, but uh, that to me shows that uh, you can uh, uh, transfer this antibody into their bloodstream and that they will be effective against the virus. Uh, adverse events. We think about this a lot, and uh, we are desperate for additional data. This is the data from the clinical trial, uh, looking at uh, patients that, uh, in terms of uh, outcomes, headache, fatigue, cough, no different between Evusheld and placebo. However, there was this weird thing with the cardiac SAE, uh, severe uh, adverse event, in that it was in 0.6%. Uh, of the Evusheld recipients and 0.2 of the placebo. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know if this was a, 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 a thing that when the numbers are bigger for the post-marketing uh, experience will go away, but uh, it, it does make us at least talk to our patients about this risk and, uh, and oftentimes talking to a cardiologist that if the patient has existing cardiac conditions. Uh, uh, we... Um, um, we do have the advantage in that anybody that at our center gets a transplant has had a thorough cardiac evaluation ahead of time. So we kind of know where they are in the spectrum cardiac-wise. But uh, it, it, it's there. It's disturbing. Do you have any thoughts about this? What are you doing? You know, I'm not too concerned about this. One of our clinical trialists in cardiology reviewed the data. Um, it doesn't seem like it's really an important signal. And I will say that people who actually 